Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Doctors John and Julie Gottman are world-renowned experts in the fields of marital stability, divorce prediction, and quite simply, I think they are the best in the world when it comes to all things love, conflict, and relationships. It is beyond an honor to have them on the show today, and I promise there's going to be some life-changing takeaways for all of our listeners, regardless of their relationship status. It's a good one. I am so excited. John, Julie, welcome. Thank Thank you, you, Jason. Jason. I am such a huge fan of your work, and I read a lot, and I, I always don't remember everything I read. And I first heard of your work when I read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink back in 2007, so 14 years ago, as you were famously able to predict within 15 minutes whether or not a couple would still be together 15 years later. And it is one of the most memorable anecdotes I've ever read in relationships. So I have to start. I feel like that, that in my mind, made your work famous. So let's start there and talk about that. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, what did you do? Let's talk about that 15 minutes. You know, what happened yeah. in that 15 minutes? And what did you see that led you to be able to, to sure. say this couple is going to make it? This couple has no chance with essentially 90% accurate, 90, north of 90% accuracy, which is just well, astonishing. You know, the first study that Bob Levinson and I did back in the 1970s, we didn't have any predictions. We were just, we just discovered that when there was a ratio of the amount of seconds people were positive to one another divided by the number of seconds they were negative to one another. That positive to negative ratio actually predicted whether they'd be together or not three years later. That was our first finding. And we were quite surprised by that. And we found that certain things were better predictors than others. And I wound up calling them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So that when couples started their conflict discussion by pointing their finger at their partner and saying, the problem is you, and here's what's wrong with you. We call that criticism. And when they were superior, we call that contempt when they acted better than their partner. And when they were defensive, when they denied any responsibility for their role in the miscommunication, defensiveness was also a very good predictor. And stonewalling, which was withdrawing as a listener emotionally from the conversation. Those four things predicted with almost 90% accuracy uh, the future of the relationship. And in six consecutive studies, those findings replicated. So we found we could predict very accurately. And couples who stayed together and, and stayed together happily were very different in the way they talked about a conflict. They took responsibility for the problem. They pointed their finger at themselves and talked about what they needed from their partner, giving their partner a recipe for success. They were less defensive and they stayed connected rather than stonewalling, even when their heart rates got high. So can you, I I love the four horsemen. Can you just summarize the four horsemen again are? Okay. So the first one is criticism. Criticism means blaming a problem on a personality flaw of your partner. For example, you're so lazy, you're so thoughtless, right? 
How many times have we heard that one? Contempt is the second one, and that one is the worst. Contempt is like criticism, but it's got a little smear of disgust added to it. It can be sarcasm, mockery, superiority, looking down your nose at somebody. You wouldn't even think to call the plumber, would you? That kind of thing, right? The third is defensiveness. And defensiveness, there's two types. One is being a righteous victim, like, I did too empty the dishwasher, don't come down on me. And also counterattack is the other way of being defensive. Well, you didn't pay the bills. So it's back and forth, counterattacks. And the, the last one is stonewalling. And stonewalling means when you're in an interaction with your partner, you shut everything down that implies you're listening to your partner and wanting to respond. You don't look at your partner most of the time. You don't move your face. You don't say anything. You don't go, hmm, uh-huh, like that. And that lasts a long time, minutes at a time. Even though the partner is trying to get your attention, trying to get you to respond, you refuse to. That's stonewalling. And so when it comes to conflict, it's not necessarily the frequency of conflict. It's about how you engage. Uh, exactly. And so some people will say, well, we fight all the time and th that could be healthy conflict. And then you hear people say, we never fight. What do you make of people who never fight? Is that okay? Unless it's stonewalling all the time, which is to me is pretty obvious. And with regards to conflict, I'm getting to frequency here. Like, is it just, even if it's a healthy conflict, is there uh, a frequency that just becomes a bit too much in your opinion? Well, first of all, I think that John's original finding that couples need to have an, five positive interactions to every one negative interaction during conflict is very important, but during non-conflict times, you need 20 positive interactions to one negative interaction to have a healthy relationship. So if you're thinking that you're conflicting all the time, and even if that ratio is five to one all the time, like nonstop, it's a bit like chain smoking, isn't it? Just one conflict after another, after another, after another. So you're not really ever having times of that 20 to one positivity that counterbalances some of the negativity uh, that occurs during conflict. So that's probably not going to be terrific. Uh, it's better to have a little gap, a few minutes, maybe, <laughs> maybe a few hours even between the times when you're conflicting, even if it's healthy conflict. And if, there, if two conflict avoiders are paired to one another, that works out pretty well. <laughs> well it, you don't have to engage in conflict. But we discovered there are two kinds of conflict avoiders. One kind of conflict avoider actually talks about how they feel and what they need with one another. They just don't uh, engage in persuasion and compromise, but they kind of try to understand each other fully. And that's very healthy. The other kind of con conflict avoider just avoids talking about anything, any issue at all. And they just kind of, they're kind of silent. And if you're 
if two people are like that and they're paired together, that can work very well, actually. They're basically inhibiting all the negativity and, and doing quite well. So that kind of relationship works also. Conflict avoidance is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a bad thing when you actually are confronting a real issue in your lives. And then you don't have any tools for talking through something that's very important. So if a child is ill or, or your parents are ailing or something like that, where you actually need to talk to one another and have a deep conversation, those kind of conflict avoiders are kind of brittle in confronting the stresses of life. So they're okay as long as their lives are stress-free. But once right. there's a lot of stress, they don't have the tools for really negotiating any kind of plan to move forward in the face of stress. You mentioned stress and a lot of stress right now for a lot of people. And right. even the most mindful, the most conscious of couples who are trying to be so, so conscious of, of their word choice and how they engage in conflict. Sometimes it, 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 things get heated. Sometimes you just lose it. And in that instance, you, you, your research has shown a 20 minute break during conflict can help you get out of that. Cause I think we all have, I've had those moments where you, you try to be so purposeful around <laughs> conflict, but then sometimes it's just, oh man, I lost it. And let's talk about that. Well, so what we found is what we call flooding. We loosely call flooding. And what's happening there is that when you feel attacked by your partner, even if your partner is saying, gee, I love you, darling, you're wonderful, you still feel attacked. What's happening is that you've got blood moving out of the frontal, prefrontal cortex here and moving back into the motor area to prepare you to fight or flee, right? So you've heard of fight or flight. That's what's really happening. And because you don't have enough activation up here in the prefrontal cortex where you problem solve, you can listen accurately, you can empathize, you can be creative. Instead, you're hearing everything is attack and it feels like tunnel vision, tunnel hearing, and you don't know what to do. I think 80% of our people who were stonewalling were men who were flooded. In other words, their heart rates also, when you've got that fight or flight operating, your heart rate goes up typically over 100 beats a minute. So you can be sitting there calmly with 140 heart rate. Your blood pressure goes up. You've got stress hormones pumping into your blood and so on. So it's a terrible state. It feels physically awful. And what you need to do is to very specifically, there's some steps to this that you really have to follow. One is you say that you want to take a break. You stop on a dime at that point. Don't try to get in the last word if your partner's asking for the break. And say when you'll come back to continue mm -hmm. the conversation. That's crucial. Because if you don't, and you're the one asking for the break, the partner may feel abandoned or rejected and feel like you're never going to get back to this topic again. Then, uh, so you say when you're going to come back, 20 to 30 minutes is the minimum amount of time you should take. Sometimes it takes an hour or two hours. The maximum is 24 hours. After that, wow. it's like punishment. Yeah. So what do you do when you're on your break? 
well, you separate into separate spaces where you can't hear each other, you can't see each other, and you do something self-soothing. Now, this is crucial. A lot of people, when they take a break, will think about the fight and what they should say when they go back. What's a perfect rebuke? What's a perfect response? Well, that's terrible. <laughs> to do that because it keeps you engaged internally in the fight. You're still thinking about it. As long as you're thinking about it, your body can't calm down. So you have to get your mind off it through something like playing with the family dog, taking a walk, going for a run, even doing email, watching TV, listening to music, practicing yoga, practicing meditation, doing some stretches, doing something that brings you out of your thinking about the fight and into a calmer state so that when you go back at the designated time you agreed to, you're calm. And then you officially have had a brain transplant <laughs> and the conversation is entirely changed. So... We're going to move on from conflict and segue to what I think of as a relationship that deteriorates over time, almost subtly. It, it, it's, we all have that, that, that story, a family member, a friend, all of a sudden they're divorced and no, kind of no one knows what happened or they're, they're surprised. And you talk about the stories we tell ourselves, our narratives, and how those narratives can potentially change for the worse, especially when you say when the story involves subtle content, which is a very strong indicator of an impending breakup or divorce. So can we talk about how that, you hear it all the time, well, we just sort of fell out of love or, and it happens. And it's typically, in my opinion, you know, you know cheating, you hear the big blow up, it's just, this happens all the time, this slow erosion, if you will. So let's talk about the narrative. Yeah, let me say something about this, because what happens to a lot of couples, almost without their awareness, uh, and this was highlighted by a study done at the Sloan Center at UCLA, mm -hmm. where they looked at dual career couples with kids and put recording instruments in their home, video, tape, video uh, cameras and so on. And they found that these couples' lives had often deteriorated into just a long to-do list of managing reality. And most of the conversations that these people had with one another were really about who's going to do what, when. And they kind of neglected the romance, the passion, the fun, the joy, the laughter, the adventure, the playfulness. They really had neglected their relationship. And usually... The woman had become very child-centered and the husband had become very work-oriented. And they talked to each other less than 35 minutes a week. And so when that happens, it's kind of like buying a great car and never putting, never changing the oil, never really working on the engine, never neglecting the whole thing. And so when you neglect the relationship, it deteriorates. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happens to a lot of couples is they're sort of surprised that they wind up so alienated. But unless you put in the time to maintain romance, recently 40,000 couples about to start couples therapy, and over 80% of them said that fun had come to die in their relationship. 
And that's really telling. Many of them have not had sex in a long time. They don't feel romanced and courted anymore. They're really not having the things that made them have a relationship in the first place. So it's really benign neglect in a lot of cases that drives people apart. They get lonely. And most affairs happen because people are lonely. It's not about sex. It's really about finding somebody who likes you and finds you interesting <laughs> and listens to you. <laughs> so th there's a lot to unpack there. And you mentioned couples who stop communicating and the average, I think you said they speak 35 minutes a week. So on the flip side, you're married, you work together. My wife and I are married, we work together. There are uh -huh. a lot of other couples out there are married and work together. They're talking way too much. And, <laughs> and, and we talk way too much. And you always read, there are couples who, who work together and it doesn't work out and the marriages end. So what's the problem on that spectrum where they're talking mm. too much and work and life for one, which is, which is a magical, beautiful thing, but not all the time. <laughs> you know, I think uh, you're making a good point, Jason, which is people can talk too much, but uh, the key here, the, the little missing component is what are they talking about? If they're talking about work all the time, then people are just going to get sick of it. And mm. they'll associate this conversation that feels burdensome with the partner that's creating that conversation. So there's no problem with talking all the time as long as there's a little mix. Like if you just make a cake with flour, butter, and water, it's going to taste terrible. You got to throw some spice in there. You got to throw some vanilla, little cinnamon, a little sugar, maybe a lot of sugar. So you need some sugar in your cake. That's the point. <laughs> How does that make sense? Anyway, <laughs> The point is that you need to spice up the conversation with topics that go deeper, that are more open-ended conversations about how are you feeling about our political situation? How are well, you feeling? That may be an exhausting conversation for everyone right <laughs> now. It's not as bad now as it was. I'll just put it out there. You know where I stand. And how, what is your favorite idea of a dream vacation when COVID is over, what should we do? Things like that. Has your spirituality evolved at all over the course of this last year? Because we've never seen a year like this in our history, in our own personal history. So has your spirituality been influenced by that? How are your emotions? How's your heart? We always ask, what are you thinking? Well, what's on your heart? not just what's on your mind. So talking about those things really can be beautiful and fruitful and relieves people of thinking they're only a workhorse yoked to their partner to do work. So you mentioned spicing things up. You mentioned COVID. And I was just reading something, I think, last week. It was either Wall Street Journal or the Times. I don't remember. I don't recall. But essentially, during COVID, it's really had an effect on a lot of couples' sex lives. Yeah. And so how important is sex in a, in a relationship? And there are, very, there, there are various stages of relationship. There's early on. There's the honeymoon phase. There's kids. There's people been together for as long as you have. So... What role does sex play in the, the different stages? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, that's a great question. There's not a lot of data on this, but there's a little bit of data. There's a book edited by a guy named Brubaker. It shows that for couples 45 years old or more, about 15% of them stop having sex. Surprisingly, it's usually the man who stops rather than the woman in heterosexual couples. And have for those couples, whether they have sex or not, even if they stop entirely, they can be happy with one another or they can be very unhappy with one another. Mm. So there's at least a proportion of couples who are fine not having sex with one another at all. But for the other uh, 85% of us, sex continues to be very important. So the biggest study done on how do you have a satisfying sex life, since for that 85% it is important, and does it constitute the greatest intimacy that we can have with one another, that physical intimacy, when it's desired by both people and is satisfying. The largest study done on this was done recently by Christiana Northrup and Pepper Schwartz and Witty with 70,000 couples in 23 different countries. And they had this one question, what's different about people who say they have a great sex life? And people who say they have a terrible sex life, how are they different? And what they discovered was that there were some differences. The people who had a great sex life did things, about a dozen things that were really different from the people who had an awful sex life. And it was the same in every country. It was the same in China, Brazil, Spain, Italy, Canada, the United States. And none of those things involve what you do in the bedroom. <laughs> Amazingly right. enough, there were things like the people who had a great sex life said, I love you at least once a day and really meant it. They kissed their partner passionately, often, for no reason at all. They cuddled together. So only 4% of the non-cuddlers said they had a great sex life. 96% of them said they had a bad sex life. No, they were... They 96% had, of... Of the non-cuddlers said they, they had an awful sex life. So as cuddling was very important, showing affection even in public was very important. Having a romantic date once a week, taking romantic vacations, giving compliments, giving surprise presents, all of those things, staying good friends, having adventure together, that's what was different about the couples who are great sex life. So they kept things alive. They kept emotion alive. They kept fun and play and adventure and affection. And so that's pretty amazing. It doesn't take a lot to really have things go great in the bedroom. What you do in the bedroom is your business. <laughs> so, so on that note, something else, I, I don't know what the data is, but I, I've read about it recently. It seems to be trending, if you will, non-monogamous relationships, polyamorous. Like, I'm just, what's your take? Well, there's not very much research on non-monogamy. More and more therapists are thinking that's a conversation a couple needs to have and talk about. What we know about long-term, lifelong relationships that are happy and stable is that the two pillars that make them work are commitment and trust. And so when you weaken those pillars, you know, when people are not committed 
and they can say, well, if something better comes along, I'm out of here. Or if they can't trust you, if there's deception in the relationship, then your own relationship is more at risk. So if you can have non-monogamy and still have commitment and trust, it could work. But we don't know enough right now. You want sure. to add anything to that? Yeah, I think before the uh, advent of AIDS, gay men had lots and lots of polyamory. They might have a primary relationship, but there was great acceptance of sexual relationships outside of that primary diet. With AIDS, of course, a lot of that stuff cut back, but now it's, yeah, it's loosening up again a little bit. In heterosexual couples, and maybe lesbian couples, it's more and more difficult. A lot of times you'll see the partners having a different attitude towards it. So one person wants it, the other person is not so great about it, but they want to please their partner so they go along with it. But when they do go along with it, without really speaking what they want, which may be more monogamy, then they become more and more insecure and things mm -hmm. can start falling apart. But I've never seen a, a couple where polyamory was just wonderful for both of them over the long haul. But that may be because I'm a psychologist and I'm seeing people with problems. But I have heard of some kind of extended, let's say extended family, where there is a polyamorous set of people that are perfectly happy, allegedly, and continue the polyamory over the course of time. So I don't know. Well, the biggest problem that polyamorous couples talk about is jealousy. Right. So, insecurity. And yeah. insecurity. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a higher risk kind of relationship. But, you know, for some people, it may be the only way they can be in a relationship is to have somebody in the wings in case things don't work out or it, that makes them feel more secure, more loved. Um, you know, right. there's, there's very little research on it, part, partly because polyamory is not one thing. It's many different things. Sometimes just reading the, there's about 15 books now that have come out that are sort of memoirs of polyamorous people. And it's not one thing. I mean, sometimes it's a couple who, who are heterosexual who both fall in love with a woman and have relationships with a woman. And the problem comes in when one of them is more involved with that woman than they are with their partner. Another form of polyamory, as Julie mentioned, is two couples who have sex with one another. There's another form of polyamory where they actually have children with one another. And so it's not one thing. So it's kind of hard to do research on something that isn't well-defined. You know, years ago, I spoke to Dr. Sue Johnson and her take, black and white, we are primates, we are wired to be monogamous. Anyone who tells you any different, very, very hard line in the sand. You can try whatever you want, but this is how we're wired. Not for me. I tend to agree. We wanted to get your take. Yeah, I don't think there's enough research on it. And yeah. I think we've got to keep an open mind. And not all primates are monogamous either. <laughs> so. Right. That's, yeah. Monobos are uh, Right. Yeah. So I'm going to, we're, I'm going to segue to success. I think most of us aren't looking for, I think most of us are looking for successful, happy, loving, long lasting monogamous relationships. I'm just going to say that's probably the majority of people. And I'm going to go back to okay. what you call the science of love. And 
what are some of the most important factors that will determine if a relationship's really going to last and be everything we want it to be? Well, we've got a theory about that, that all of John and my studies have led to and confirmed over and over again. So basically there's nine things. We talked about trust and commitment, right? So trust and commitment are incredibly important. And we know what commitment is. It's really committing to uh, be on your lifetime path with that partner, not deviating from that path. Trust really means, are you there for me? Are you there for me when I'm sick, when I'm moody, when I'm depressed, when I'm happy, when I want to celebrate, when I feel defeated? Will you be there for me? That really is defining of trust. And not everybody is going to be 100% trustworthy. In fact, most of us are not. We'll hurt each other because we're human beings and we make mistakes. But for the most part, trust is there. The other seven are what we call the sound relationship house levels. So there's different levels of the sound relationship house. We think of trust and commitment as the walls. The seven levels include the following. The first is what we call love maps. Love maps mean, who are you? <laughs> really understanding the other person's internal world. What are their feelings, their values, their needs, their priorities, their most embarrassing moment in childhood, their favorite flower. It really is asking questions. That's how you form it. Asking questions to keep updated on who your partner is and how they're evolving over time and your partner doing the same with you so that you feel known. That's very important. We call it love maps. The second is fondness and admiration. Fondness and admiration doesn't just mean feeling fondness and admiration. It means expressing it on a daily basis, either with words or with touch. So you can't just think it and assume your partner knows it because you said it a few times during the early phase of the relationship. They need to keep hearing it, and so do you. So it's very important to express your fondness and admiration, your respect for each other. The third is super important. We call it turning towards. So turning towards means how do you respond to your partner's bid for connection? And bids for connection can show up in lots of ways. It can be, hey, Charlie, do you respond or not? Or it can be, wow, look at that beautiful boat. Does your partner just keep reading? Does your partner ignore you? That's called turning away. Or does your partner say, stop interrupting me, I'm trying to read. That's turning against you. What you want to hear is your partner going, huh, wow, that is a beautiful boat. And that also includes, that level of the sound relationship house includes when you come to your partner with a need, a big need, mm -hmm. like I really need you at the end of the day to ask me how my day went. So I can download with you. I can relieve some of my stress by sharing it with you. Well, will your partner respond to that need? So that's turning towards. And what we saw in our research was that 
successful couples in an apartment lab we created where a couple would stay for 24 hours would respond to each other's bids for connection 85% of the time who were successful. Those were the successful ones down the road a few years. The ones who were not successful, only 33% of the time. So that's a big difference. The fourth level we call either the positive or the negative perspective. And this isn't one that you shape just by itself. It's influenced by the quality of the friendship, those first three levels, love maps, fondness and admiration and turning towards. And it's also influenced by how you deal with conflict. So what it refers to that negative or positive perspective is, do you give your partner the benefit of the doubt if your partner's grumpy and your partner comes down and is grumpy with you and you think, well, maybe they just had a bad night's sleep. That's the positive perspective. You're giving the partner the benefit of the doubt. The negative perspective is the opposite, where everything out of your partner's mouth feels like criticism or feels negative or put down to you. And so you respond to it negatively with defensiveness. You always think there's bad stuff going on between you. That's the negative perspective. Okay. The fifth level we call a conflict management. So conflict management, as we've said, means you replace those four horsemen of the apocalypse with positive ways of talking to one another. So criticism and contempt, for example, you replace by describing yourself, saying what you feel. I feel upset. I feel angry. You can't cheat and say, I feel like you are an idiot. That doesn't (laughs) work. And then you follow that feeling description with what your positive need is. Positive need is what you do need in order for your partner to shine for you, as opposed to a negative need, which is what you resent or don't want. So I feel upset that, and you can describe the situation, the kitchen is dirty. That's the situation. You're not describing your partner, rather the situation. Would you please clean it up? That's your positive need. So you replace criticism and contempt with that. Defensiveness, you try to just take responsibility for your own part. Ah, you're right. I do that sometimes. And stonewalling, you take a break, self-soothe, and come back. So conflict management includes those positive skills as well as learning how to process regrettable incidents that have happened in the past that still fester inside you that you just can't stop thinking about. You need a way to talk about those without blame, without criticism. And we have an intervention, a whole exercise for that too. The next level is called honor your dreams, honor each other's dreams. And that one can have to do with conflict. Because sometimes what we're in conflict about is related to a deeply held dream that we have. 
about a particular issue. And we have an exercise that really helps uncover the, what we call the dream within conflict that allows each person to deeply understand where the other is coming from regarding a conflict. So the compromise is much easier because there's compassion between you now. So that's honor each other's dreams. And the last one is create shared meaning. Now, shared meaning doesn't mean you have to have the same purpose or meaning for your life that your partner does. What it means is that you talk about your own individual sense of life, purpose, and meaning with your partner. You share it. You talk about it. And then you try to support your partner really living out that life purpose. So, so beautiful. And there's so many great nuggets for people to, to pull out there. And I'm going to, I'm going to spend a little time on one of them. I think is fascinating and the love map. And how do you approach that conversation? Can you coach us through? I, I think it's very critical. It's fascinating. So how, how does that conversation happen? We have a way of jumpstarting it. So it's easier. And so your listeners can go to the app store and type in Gottman Card Decks and download an app for free. It's now been downloaded 350,000 times. Awesome. And it, it, and it can be on your phone. And that app contains 14 different card decks. And one of them is open-ended questions. And you can just ask one another the questions on that card deck. And they're questions like, if you had an unlimited budget, how would you change our home? And <laughs> Great question. Great yeah. question. Especially and, these days. I know. <laughs> and, you know, questions like, how would you like our, your life to change five years from now? Where would you like to be five years from now in your life? So these are open-ended questions. They open the heart and they begin these conversations. And Julie and I have an annual honeymoon that we do once a year. And we go through these card decks every year. We take our kayak to a bed and breakfast and we ask each other these questions to, to try to really find out how we've changed during the year and what we want next year to be like. So we have these tools for really creating these conversations. Another card deck on that free tool is expressing your needs. And you can use the cards and say, here's what I need from you this week. Would you be willing to meet those needs and just select a couple and, and really ask for what you need from your partner? I, I love it. And you mentioned the last year, and I'm curious, what have you been seeing more of in the past year in a, in a COVID world? And, and how, do you, how have relationships evolved? How do you think they will continue to evolve in a post-pandemic world? And I'm curious, zooming out, how's the state <laughs> of marriage and relationships changed in the last three to four decades since you've been doing it's a big question but a lot a lot a lot's happened over 30 to 40 years and then especially in the last year so much has changed wow that's those are three big questions so I'll well i've, I've got the heavyweights of relationships with me so you know. oh, <laughs> right okay so first of all what we've seen i mean this last year has been like a laboratory watching what happens to relationships. So what we've seen in a nutshell is that really good relationships have gotten better and better 
They've been great because people are actually having the time to talk to each other. They're not running away from work all the time or to work all the time. But the bad relationships have really suffered much worse. So domestic violence is way up all over the world, actually, mm -hmm. but in this country as well. It's way up. The bad marriages or relationships are suffering desperately because they don't have the tools. And I wrote an op-ed piece for the what was it? Washington, Post. Washington Post a while back that where I noted that the these bad relationships are in a pressure cooker. And somebody's turning up the steam, you know, mm. higher and higher and higher and higher. And there's no release valve. COVID shut down the release valve. And so, boom, the whole frame explodes. And that's what we've been seeing. People in just terrible shape. And not knowing how to get space from one another. Not knowing how to manage conflict. And compounded by the awful stress with kids being at home, kids being terribly stressed and unhappy because they can't, they haven't been able to see their friends for the most part, missing school, hating school over virtual media, and that stress carrying over into the whole family complex. So it's been very difficult. Now, with that said, I think there's a glorious release as people are getting vaccinated but one has to still be really careful with the variants. And so we're seeing surges again of COVID as people run out of their houses to meet with each other and maybe not everybody is vaccinated. So we're still tiptoeing through this. And relationships, people are just, it, it's as you get near the finish line, you breathe harder, right? You try harder. You are, you're just dying to get across that finish line. Well, that's what we're seeing today with especially suffering relationships. So relationships that are suffering, this is another big question, but. What the when heck? You, when do you, yeah, what the heck? Let's go for it. When do you know when to walk away? Oh, that's a good one. First of all, it's not if you feel hate. I mean, there's been a whole lot of hate surfacing over the last four years, five years. And that's, of course, manifested in relationships too. It's when there's total, complete apathy. When you have absolutely no spark left, there's no ember, nothing. It's gray ash. And it's lasting. It's not just a mood for the week. It's months of feeling that with trying to get therapy, trying to do deeper stuff, trying to have some fun, etc. Trying everything. That's one time to walk away. Another, of course, is when there is domestic violence. And when I say domestic violence, I'm talking about a specific kind which is characterological domestic violence, we call it, where one person is the perpetrator, the other is the victim. The perpetrator takes absolutely no responsibility for the violence, and the victim can do nothing to stop it, no matter what. 
they get blamed for it and there's nothing they can do to stop it. They need to get out. But 80% of domestic violence we see is situational that just results from big escalated quarrels and that can be helped. Mm -hmm. It's not with major injuries, it's minor stuff, a slap or a push. But we've created a therapy that helps it. We've proved it in our research, or at least we've got one study that shows that it works. So and alcohol plays a big role. Alcohol sure, in the violence. In, in the, in the situational violence. violence. Yeah. So those are a couple sure. affairs you can help if both people want to work on it. Yeah. Uh, there's addiction you can help if both people want to work on it. So and l- let me say, let me address your question about how have relationships changed in the last 30, 40 years, <laughs> which is a really interesting question. And and what I've found in reading the research literature and sociologist reports is that a lot of people, particularly young people around the world, have turned away from relationships and not tried to have good relationships. This is especially true in Japan, where the figure, the estimates are that 40% of young people are just not are just wanting to live life alone. Now, the good news is the people who are choosing relationships, those relationships are a lot more stable. And the divorce rate has gone from about 60 to 67% across the world to under 50%. So that's still very high, and we think we can help with that with our therapy and our psychoeducational programs as well, our weekend workshops, the art and science of love. And so we think we can help with that in a variety of ways, and we're trying an app that will live on a couple cell phones that will help with conflict and with intimacy and connection and friendship and shared meaning as well. So we can help those people. So I, that's where I see things going. It's two directions. There's people who said, oh, the heck with relationships. I'll just live life alone. And now in a lot of countries, women are able to do that. They don't necessarily rely economically on the male to be the breadwinner and the earner. Yeah, it's so a lot also- of people are choosing the solitary solo life. But those who aren't actually are doing better. And they and we think they could do better with the tools that we have found in our research. And there's also, I will close in a high note, so I'll go to my last question, because we're optimists here, but I, I will make a comment about that. I, I read something recently, I think it was Scott Galloway, who was talking about the trend of essentially uh, young white men living in solitude, not having relationships or sexual relationships, being more prone to conspiracy theories, violence, all sorts of bad things we don't want, which is another problem uh, in this day and age. Uh, But we're not going to close there because we're we're hopeful. It's 2021. So I'm going to close with some hope for, and let's start with all the great young couples out there. Couple, they met and they're, in love and they're maybe they're about to get married so any advice for someone just starting out or getting married yeah can i give my favorite advice piece of advice is that if you want to have a great relationship the one thing to do is to adopt the motto toward your partner that honey when you're upset the world stops and i listen 
and I want to know what's bothering you because your feelings and your needs are the most important thing to me. Wow. What would be your advice? <laughs> hard, hard to follow. Well, I bet it's about dreams. Yeah. Find out what your partner's dreams are, not nighttime dreams, dreams for their life. Everybody's got dreams, no matter what, no matter what your educational level is. Find out, ask your partner, what would your ideal next five years look like, next 10 years, and so on. What, what is it that really pulls your heart forward into life? What do you want? Because I want to honor that, whatever it is. Hmm. And keep asking that question because people's dreams change along with their life experience as their wisdom deepens. So keep asking that question. I love it. And my last question, what's the one thing that anyone in any stage of any relationship should do every day? At any stage of relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Any stage, early, late, you know, whether married for 20 years or you just, you met last month, but it's going really well. What's the one thing anyone should do? Don't be afraid to say what you need. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Legends in the science of relationships. Such an honor to have you both on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jason, thank you. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thank yeah, you so thank you. much. Thank you. Thank you. 